We're going to talk about Titus this morning. Uh, this series is, well, it, you know, sometimes we do a series and everything kind of ties together. Remember we did the Y Church series and I kept doing a review each week. And I don't think this one's really going to be that way. I, I mean, Titus, the book has some themes, but I think it's going to be a lot of, you know, Brad and I kind of going, here's the passage and... What thoughts has the Lord sort of led us to to share with you on these? And so even today, I think I'm really going to just draw out three thoughts. And so in some ways, it's kind of be three mini-sermons kind of put together here. So my encouragement to you is to just take notes and see what the Lord would have you take away each week. And, you know, sometimes we do series and we do teachings. And it's a little more like a symphony and everything is composed. And sometimes it's a little bit more like jazz. So this is going to be more of a jazz series. And I don't know, maybe some of you don't like jazz. That's fine. I don't know if I'm a big jazz fan, but that's how we're going to do it. We're just going to go a thought at a time. So that being said, before I dive into the passage, we'll go ahead and pray. And prepare our hearts here. Yeah, Lord, it's as always a blessing to be together in your presence and with your people. And God, as we gather here in this community, whether this is our, our church home or whether we're new or just checking things out or visiting or traveling or wherever, Lord, you've called us here this morning and I trust you have something to speak into each one of our lives this morning. And God, it's not because of me. Lord, I, I feel like I just am playing one role on the team. I'm blocking and tackling. It's just the one thing I'm doing, Lord. So it's not about me. Lord, it's about you. God, we come before you this morning to worship you as we listen to what your word has to say into our lives. Lord, as we pray often, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. As we look to the words that Paul wrote to Titus, his true son in the faith, so long ago, Lord, we know that there's application and principles and directions for us to follow as individuals and as a church. So help us to hear and help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, three parts. We'll start with it. And we'll go with the first piece of the passage <clears> the <throat> beginning, Titus 1, 1 through 4. And I don't know about you, when I read Paul's epistles and I, I go, man, sometimes I like to jump over these intros, right? Paul, blah, 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 blah. Okay, let's get to the good stuff, right? But I think there's something here for us here in the beginning. He starts off, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect... And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, some of you know this, I, I get to, I have the privilege of teaching writing an English grammar to 4th through 6th grade homeschoolers once a week. I would not let those students get away with a sentence like that. In fact, I don't even think that's a sentence. <laughs> that's okay. He's Paul. We let him get away with it. He goes on and he says to Titus, My true child in the common faith, some translations say true son, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So you could probably draw a lot of things out of this piece of the passage, but here's the thought I have. Don't worry, God has it all 
worked out. God has it all worked out. Now when we go back to those verses, that word, those two words, God's elect, that stands out to me. Does it stand out to you? I think some people will read that and go, Man, I'm God's elect. And then we start to get proud. And we start to get puffed up. We go, I'm, God has elected me. God has selected me. And then we say, I'm elected and you're not. And we don't want to be that way. I think there's a classic misunderstanding here when we talk about the elect. Is that, oh, that means you don't have a choice. God has elected you. You don't have a choice. You just sort of conscripted into it. And we go, oh man, some of you who've been around Christian circles for a long time are going, oh, predestination versus free will. Here we go, right? <laughs> feel like you're back on a college campus and you're going to sit in a dorm room and debate, is it predestination or free will? And you're going to go round and around and around with somebody else who thinks something different. And it's still, even though it's kind of like, oh, whatever, it is an interesting intellectual exercise, isn't it? To think about predestination versus free will. Like, do we really have a choice or does God really control everything? Does we really have to do free choice? If you've never wrestled with that, I encourage you to wrestle with it. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And so I thought, well, where do I land? I might as well, I'm up here, I'll just share where I land on this. And where I would land is, I think it's both. I think there's clear evidence in Scripture that, yes, we are predestined, and yet we also have free will. I think you can point to places in the Scripture, including this passage, that shows us that both things are going on. We are elected by God, and yet we also get to choose or choose otherwise. And I land here because I'm confident about the nature of God. What am I confident about the nature of God? Well, a few things. First, I know that God is all-powerful, right? He has all power, and so that means nothing is outside his power, and I cannot control him. I have no control over God, because he is all-powerful. If I had control over him, there would be some power he didn't have, and therefore he wouldn't be God. I also believe God is all-knowing. He knows everything. There's no secrets. There's no sort of like, well, is that person going to believe in me or not? There's no secret to him. He knows it all. He's God. If he didn't know it all, he wouldn't be God. We also know from Scripture that God is all-present. Omnipresent, it's sometimes called. He's everywhere, at all places, at all times, which really means he's outside of time. I go, if God is outside of time, then this starts to make a little more sense that, yeah, maybe this all could work together. And we know in the midst of all that, we see from Scripture that God is loving and relational. And if God is loving and relational, then it's not just a, well, I pick that person and that person and there's no relationship. He calls to us and he asks us to choose. Somehow, it seems our all-powerful creator has designed the universe so that we can choose him or reject him. He's designed it that way. And so I find real confidence here. Maybe you don't land in a place in your journey of faith where you're confident in this and you know what that's okay like I said wrestle with it think about it pray about it and yet I think in spite of wrestling I think God wants us to be at peace on this even if we're not certain even if we go well I mean realistically people have debated this and wrestled with this for a couple thousand years a lot of really smart people have come to a lot of really different answers on it and that's fine but why should we be at peace about it the main reason, I think, when we look at this passage, 
is because Paul himself was peaceful about it. There didn't seem to be any tension in Paul's mind about what was going on. We go back to the passage here, and Paul says, he says, look, God has elected us, and yet I'm called to do something. I'm called to preach so that people might hear. Paul sees God's divine election, and yet he hears the call to preach to other people. He's both receiving and doing, and he's at peace. And I think we should be too. I think Paul has given us that model right there. And so part of finding that peace is knowing that there is a profound comfort in God's promise. What is God's promise? Paul says it right there. He says the promise, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Wow, God promised eternal life to us before time, before things got started? How is that even possible? Didn't we choose? Yeah, we did choose. Well, how do we know? What's, what backs this up in Scripture? Well, I love to go back to Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning. Adam and Eve fall and God responds. He's talking to the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the women and between your offspring and her offspring. And this is his first reference to Jesus. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Just after the original sin of Adam and Eve, God tells us he has a plan for defeating evil. And that plan ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah, who brings us eternal life. See, God didn't need to adjust his plan because of sin. They didn't have control over him. He didn't have to adjust. He already had a plan. He was already in control. Man, we should take comfort in that. God already knows. He holds it all, every challenge, every difficulty in our life. He already knows. And yet at the same time, we need to recognize that there is a meaningful purpose for us in God's plan. If it really was predestination only, yep, God just sort of picks and we're just either saved or we're not or we're God's children or not. If everything was simply God's win and we had no choice, why would we be here today? I mean, realistically, why aren't we just home playing Xbox and eating Cheetos? Right? Why are we here? Why do we make any choices? So we know that can't be true. The scriptures wouldn't make sense, including this scripture, Matthew 28. Excuse me, 19 to 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If it was just predestination, why did Jesus himself tell us to do this? Who cares? Right? If it was all predestination, well, God's just picked some people and they're going to be saved and that's how it goes. But there's a command. And we need to follow it. So here's how I would summarize this thought. God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful, and I can't control him, and he can't and won't be defeated. I hope you find comfort in that, because I do. Yet within his power, he has granted a choice to me and to you to choose right or wrong. Let's be honest, we have chosen to sin. However, God has also foreseen our choice and has offered a way back, a way back to eternal life with him, and that way is Jesus Christ. 
When we choose to submit to Christ, we can find direction, purpose, and meaning as we obey his commands. So that's how I think there's, there's just a summary there of God has it all worked out. And we can find comfort. And I was trying to think through, all right, how do I illustrate this? Right? It's this really difficult concept, isn't it? Where we think about, man, it's like time and God controls, but he knows, but we have a choice. And, and this is the best I could do. See the picture on the screen? I have six children. This is not my house. I got this off the internet. But there are times, you guys know, if you have children. If you don't have children, maybe you don't understand this. But you probably do. It's the second law of thermodynamics, isn't it? Everything tends towards disorder. Your house tends towards disorder. So maybe your house has ever looked something like this or not. I don't know. But if your house is like this and you have children, and here we are in holiday season, and you know, oh man, company's coming over. We've got to get this cleaned up. And so as a parent, you say, you get your children, and you gather them together, and you say, children, the house is a wreck. We need to clean it. And you start giving, you need to do this, and you go do this, and you do this, and that, and this, and we're going to do that. And when you're done with that, you come back to me, and we're going to get this other thing cleaned up, and you've got to spray the windows, and you've got to clean the toilets, and you've got to pick up the toys, and we've got to put the books away, and we've got to throw the stuff out, and, you know, whatever. Make the bed for grandma, or whoever it is that's coming. And you go, ready, break! And everyone runs off, right? Theoretically, that's how it works. And everybody goes off and has this task to do this thing. And yet... Everybody has a choice, don't they? Your kids, your spouse, maybe, your husband, <laughs> have a choice whether they're going to do what you've asked them to do or not. And, you know, if you're trying to follow God and they don't do it, you're going to come in, you're going to discipline them, you're going to try to get them back to do it, and whatever, right? Because you have this task that has to get done. And at the end of the day, it's going to get done, isn't it? If it means you've got to sit there and you've got to pick up everything and you've got to clean the toilets and you've got to make the bed, it's going to get done. Whether the people you've asked to do it are going to do it or not. right? And so I don't know if that's the perfect illustration, but I go, man, I think that's how God sort of sees it. He says, here's this world and you get to choose and you're going to do this. At the end of the day, it's going to work out the way I've planned it's going to be, the way I have power over it. And you get to choose whether you're going to be part of it or not. So, that's my little thought on that passage. Let's move on to the next one. All right. Verses 5 to 9. Paul goes on. He just jumps right into it here with Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So probably a lot of things you could draw out of this passage, but here's the thought I have is that I think from this passage and others like it, God gives a clear but difficult method for establishing church leadership. A clear but difficult method for establishing church leadership. I really think Paul is just saying, here's how you appoint leaders in your church. 
And he uses that term elder, right? And we could try to get into like splitting hairs of, you know, are there elders, are there pastors, are there bishops, are there other things. Really, when you really go into the Greek and you look at these things, it doesn't seem like there's some difference between these things. All those terms really apply to the same person, the same office, the same leader. Elder and overseer and pastor and bishop, those are all synonymous. And so, when we understand that, we really have two choices. We can either accept what Paul's instructions are, which we trust are from the Lord because they're in the scripture, and we can accept that those are really applicable to the church today, or we can say, yeah, I don't really think those are applicable. I'm going to look for a different way to do it. And why do we have to look for a different way? Well, because Paul didn't give us any other options, and the New Testament didn't give us any other options, and Jesus didn't give any other options. This is kind of the option that's given to us. And so if we're not going to do this, we've got to look somewhere else outside of the Bible for it. So what does this look like? What is this method? What is the biblical method that we see outlined here in Titus and in 1 Timothy and in Hebrews? Here's a few points. The first one is that pastoral leadership is really appointed from within the local church. According to Paul, he says, appoint from within every town. He didn't say, go get that guy and move him over there and go over here. You know, Crete, you know I brought you from Asia Minor. Bring the guys from Asia Minor and have them be pastors over here in Crete. It's, that's not how it worked. He said, there in every town, appoint leadership right there. The second thing is, it's men whose lives are known. Why are they known? Because they've been heavily invested in that church. He didn't say, get the guy from this town, take it to that town. Why? They're heavily invested right there in that location. The third thing we see is that character is the primary basis for that appointment, not skills. Maybe not the way we think about things, but that's very clearly what it says in the passage. It's all about the man's character. That's where everything flows from. And the fourth thing I see is this, is that compensation isn't excluded, but it's not guaranteed. The text is silent. Whether paid or not, we don't know. It doesn't say. He says appoint elders. He didn't say pay elders. He didn't say don't pay elders. So we go, okay, that may or may not be part of it. So there's some challenges to this, isn't there? <coughs> if there wasn't challenges, everybody would do it. So what are the challenges? The challenges of the biblical method. Well, I think of a few. The first is this is a big list of character qualifications. It's not just, oh yeah, he manages his finances. Or, yeah, he's a good teacher. Right? There's all these things. You have to be this and this and this and this. That's a big list. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to hold up to those character qualifications. Another challenge is, you know, when you shop local, everybody knows your flaws. If you raise somebody up within, it's like, well, there's no hiding behind a resume. We know exactly what that guy thought about that thing when that thing happened. We know how he raises his kids. We know how he treats his wife. You can't hide behind a resume. To make it work, you actually need a plurality. Right? You don't just have one. He says elders. Elsewhere we say, yeah, it really does seem to be a council. Well, then you need two people who meet these qualifications, or three people, or however many. It's not just one guy. Wow, that's a hard thing to do. It's hard to get multiple people doing these things. Furthermore, it takes those men out of their current roles. 
Right? He says, appoint. Call them in. Have them do something different. Takes them out of their role in the church. Maybe they're fulfilling a certain role and, ah, it's time to step into this. Or, you know, in the case of somebody who says, hey, we want to pay you. We want you to do this full time. It means stepping out of some place where a guy has maybe built skills or built a career or a lifestyle for his family. It's like, yeah, come to something different. That's hard. That's hard. Would you want to do this? It's a hard thing to do. We go, wow, I wouldn't just do that off the cuff. I wouldn't just do that. It's a hard thing. So those are some of the challenges. So is this what we see in America? Is this the model we see? It's not really the model, is it? So what is the model we see? What's the method we see American churches have, generally speaking, adopted? And not every church. And there's variation. I'm not trying to criticize. I'm just saying what it is. Well, typically how it works is a church gets together and they say, all right, we're going to elect a board, or we're going to appoint, or we're going to vote, and have a board of elders. And that elders, they're, they're typically what they call lay people, which I always think is kind of a funny term, right? Lay people, they're like laying down. As the, you know, non-clergy, so to speak. And they're people who are invested in the church, and people who have been around for a while, and they become a council, and... Some churches follow a congregational model and they take votes, but even in those situations, there's generally a group of people who kind of lead the things, right? So the church elects this board of elders, and then that board is the one that goes out and hires paid staff, or I guess maybe unpaid staff, or partly paid staff, I don't know, including a pastor to manage the operations of a church. And this can include anything from administration, to teaching, to counseling, to visiting people in the hospital or, or whatever. It's just like, okay, we're hiring you and you go do the stuff that we want you to do. And so the qualifications for that are really weighted towards skill and not character. The staff may be from within the church, but a lot of times they're from outside the church. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> I've never really done this. I went and looked. There's all these websites where you can, like, find resumes of pastors, post jobs. It's like a whole thing. So people may or may not be from within your church. And then that staff, that staff is accountable to the board. And they can be fired. They can be reprimanded. They can be given orders. They can be directed. So where does this method come from? Where does it come from? Uh, it's not really there in the scripture. So, I don't know. I look at it and I go, well, it kind of comes from corporate America, really, where it works pretty well. You get a corporation, you get a board, they hire people, they fire people, answer, answerable to the shareholders. But it's not from scripture. Okay, so it's not from scripture. Why do most churches do this? I think they do it because, like we said, character-based local selection of pastors is a really difficult thing to do. It is really hard. It's a lot easier to just go out on a website and get some resumes. And really, at this point now, there's a, almost what we call like a church economy, where there is that. It, it's just easy to sort of walk into that, because it's all sort of set up, and people are out there, and you can hire them and fire them and just kind of move that way. But there's problems, and here's the problems. You see it on the screen. The first is this is not the scriptural instruction for what to do. I want to stand on scripture myself. I'm really scared to say, let's just, let's just scrap what the scripture says and do something different. That seems scary to me. The second thing is that it makes churches veer towards a business model 
not towards a community model. And I don't know, there's probably some business aspects of church that are really good, but I don't think that's what Christ has called us to do, is to have a business. It's to have a community. Third thing you see up there, it short-circuits the character growth of men who desire to lead in the church. If you have a church and a man says, man, I, I, I want to grow and, and, and become a pastor, well, you walk into the American method, they say, okay, you go off to school and develop a resume and then send it out everywhere and you'll get a job somewhere. Well, where was the character growth that Paul talks about in the scripture? It's not there. And then that fourth thing is it, it leads to that, there's that term, lay term again, right? There's a division between lay people and a clergy. When you create this economy and you create this world and there's all these resumes and stuff, there's sort of, well, there's a class of people who are sort of the pastors and staff of churches and then there's kind of everybody else. And the divide between them widens and widens. So obviously, as I say this, you're probably clear, that's not what we do at this church. And maybe I'm biased because of what we do at our church and this isn't how I came about. You know, my background is not in pastoring. My background is in architecture. And I've been an architect for a number of years and I still practice that somewhat, but God called me a few years ago to step into this. And you guys called me to step into it and it's my joy to step into it. But why do we do it? Sometimes we have to sort of ask, why do we stick to the biblical model when so many other people aren't sticking to the biblical model? Well, here's why. Number one, because it's scripture. We're going to live on what the scripture says. That's where we're going to stand. The second thing is we've really discovered, wow, when we do this, it keeps our focus on ministry. Not on business, it's on ministry. And allows us to have that character development. It fosters an environment for developing the character traits we see in Titus and in 1 Timothy. And then it lessens the divide between all of us. I'm not inclined to go hide behind stage before service or after service. Because I'm just like you guys. The only difference is I'm, you know, standing 12 inches above you at the moment. That's all. And so what this tells me as I go back to that point is this is a very clear, but man, it is a difficult method. It is a difficult method to establish church leadership. And now, as I close this point and move on to the next one, I want to say this. Please be clear. I am not condemning anyone who follows the American model, the business model. I have a lot of friends. I've developed a lot of friends over the years who are pastors. And even through my architecture work, I do a lot of church design. And I've worked with a lot of pastors and a lot of churches. And they work in that model. And you know what? People still get saved. And disciples still get made. And I go, okay, that's fine. And so I'm not in any way condemning anyone who's in that. But at this church, we're going to stick to what the scriptures say, even when it's hard. That's how we're going to do it. So, let's go on to my third mini-sermon. The last part of Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. Paul goes from that and he says, Yeah, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay, so now Paul is talking in something we go, wow, that's, that's fairly contextual. There's really something going on here in that church. But I think there's a broader principle we can draw out. And that's my third thought. So false teaching will come at us from people who look and sound like Christians. False teaching will come at us from people who look and sound like Christians. Obvious errors are not the ones that are going to get us, generally speaking. It's the stuff that masquerades as good. Paul emphasizes this elsewhere in Corinthians. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I know we're on Halloween week here, and ultimately, Halloween doesn't really scare me. Because it's so obvious, isn't it? We can go, well, that's not a holiday designed to honor God. <laughs> okay, that's fine. We can drive down the road, you know, in, in our neighborhood. We go, we're driving down and you see some house and it's really decorated and there's zombies and it's like, whoa. But we know that's, we, we just go, okay, stuff's going on there. But it's very obvious. None of us are, none of us probably ever walk out and say, oh man, I, I thought Halloween was actually worshiping God. We know it's not. No, it's not. Now, I neither condemn nor promote Halloween, right? I think there's a lot of latitude for families and people of how you want to engage with that holiday. So that's not what I'm talking about. But since it's obviously not intended to honor God, it's, it's fairly easy to control my life and instruct my kids as to what's honoring God and what's not when it comes to Halloween. It's very obvious. So what should we be on the lookout for? I don't think he's talking about Halloween here. I think what Paul is telling us is it's not teachers who sound good, but it's teachers whose lives are characterized by bad stuff. That's who we need to be on the lookout for because there's a deception. When something looks the same or sounds the same or seems like it's coming from the same place, that's when it becomes very difficult to understand what's going on. And so we need to beware of teachers whose lives are characterized by certain things. And he goes through those, and here's a few of them. One of those is insubordination. As someone who seems to be a good teacher, who's maybe even teaching from the Bible, have they split off from something else? What I've found in my experience over 30 years of following Christ and walking through churches is that people who are pursuing a right doctrine almost always pursue unity. And if they come to a place of sharp disagreement, they don't emphasize the fact that they've split off from something else. So we've got to watch out for that. They split off from something else. Second thing he says is empty talkers. Empty talkers. Well, I think I can ask that question. Has this teacher built a ministry that's focused on side issues and not the gospel? They built a ministry focused on side issues and not the gospel. Is the emphasis of their teaching on eternal life and salvation? Or is it on debated issues where people land in different places across Christianity? What's the emphasis of their teaching? 
if their emphasis is not on the gospel and eternal life and salvation and building God's kingdom, they're probably empty talkers. Third thing Paul talks about is they're deceivers. Do they twist the truth? Again, we're not talking about someone who comes out and it's like blatant falsehood. You know, worship Satan or something. You go, well, that's obvious. But do they twist the truth or do they tell half-truths or do they embellish their stories or testimonies? My question to so many of these teachers is they say, oh, such and such thing and it's miraculous and builds me up or this thing happened and I go, how come I can't verify it? I go out and I look and I go, surely if somebody raised from the dead, there ought to be somebody else who can testify to that and I can't find anything about it. And I go, well, maybe there's something true there, but that seems like a half-truth or an embellishment or something going on. It's concerning. We've got to be worried for that because they're deceivers. Another thing is he says, upsetting whole families. Is their teaching divide the family? Does it separate a husband from a wife? Does it take them in different directions? Does it play to the emotions or to the strengths of one or the other? The last one is shameful gain. Is his ministry really all about him and all about money? Is that ministry there to get that guy rich? And he wouldn't say that. If he said it, it'd be obvious. I'm here to make money. Well, okay. Good luck. One of those red flags, and I say this cautiously because it's not always the case. But if you find somebody, and they have a ministry, and it's named after themselves, and maybe they use all three, their first, their middle, and their last name, there's a caution there, especially if that's something that's trying to make money for them. There's a caution. Because that ministry may be all about him and all about money. And again, that's not always the case. But a lot of times it is. So how do we guard against this? How can we guard against being taken in by false teachers who look and sound like Christians? And believe me, once their hooks are in, it's really tough to disengage. Well, I have a few tips for you. Here's the first one. No good doctrine. Know it. And if you don't know it, ask questions. And don't just ask questions of that person who's teaching that thing. Look to other trusted sources. Ask your pastors. Ask your pastors. Second, independently research that teacher and their teachings. Man, it's the blessing of the information age. It's all out there. It's all out there. You can research what's going on. And I get it. The internet allows trolls, right? Don't you wish you could have a troll filter on the internet and kind of cut that stuff out? But, okay, everybody's got bad stuff about them. I think you could probably go out and find bad stuff about me. You could probably find bad stuff about our church. I know you can find bad stuff about our church movement. And that's fine. But a little discernment shows what sour grapes and what really is legitimately concerning. I think we all sort of understand, even walking in this culture, you know, you deal with like a commercial business, and you go to Yelp, and you can tell when someone just has a peeve or when something is genuinely concerning, right? And I think the same can be said true of people with their teachings and of a teacher and what's going on with their life. A little discernment goes a long way. And so now, the third thing, and I think this is the key one. Again, I say this cautiously. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't make outside teachers a staple of your personal spiritual diet. 
Don't make outside teachers a staple of your personal spiritual diet. Now be clear, I didn't say don't listen to them. I didn't say they never have anything good to say. I didn't say there's not good that can come to your spiritual life from that. I said don't make them a staple of your personal spiritual diet. And of course this applies to false teachers. Right? You certainly don't want to make false teachers part of your diet. But I think it also applies to teachers that maybe do have good things to say or who we may say, yeah, they have an orthodoxy or they do understand the gospel. I think there's a real caution we need to have. And my reason for saying that is very simple. You don't know the life of that teacher. You don't know the life of that teacher. And I think maybe that's where this little mini-sermon connects maybe back to the last one. And I got this quote from our friend John Meyer. He said this. He said, All you can get from Francis Chan or Mark Driscoll or Tim Keller is information. Are those godly men of character? Are they servant leaders? Do they live out what they teach in their everyday lives? How can we say we don't get to see their lives? They're not in our church. Their lives cannot instruct us on a regular basis. And he's talking about making them a staple of your spiritual diet. So we learn from them what matters is what we know, not what we do. And those are some, well, maybe not all of them. There's a lot of guys out there who have a lot of really good stuff to say. And again, I'm not saying it's bad or that what they're saying is bad. False teachers are bad. But we've got to be really careful because their lives aren't speaking to us. It's just their words. It's just their words. Instead, if your teachers are those you see daily, those who are committed to the work that, that is taking place in your church, those who have been with it through the highs and the lows, those who character and flaws you are intimately equated with, those who profess God but do not deny Him by their works, then you have someone from whom you can learn what to do, not just what, but what to know. You can have someone from whom you can learn what to do, not just what to know. And so I think, I think what Paul is really saying here is the best defense against false teachers is to raise up godly shepherds from within your church on the primary basis of their character and then listen to them and imitate their faith. I think that's what he's saying. And elsewhere... The author of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. I think that's what the calling is for us, men and women. And this is actually kind of a hard thing to talk about for me, right? Because I'm kind of that guy, and Brad's that guy. And we have to stand up here and say, Ah, God's called us to step here and have faith and exercise faith and open our lives to you. And I'll be the first to say I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. I don't do it all right. I don't make every right decision. But he doesn't say that you have to be perfect to be a pastor. That's not what it's about. And guys, it's, I, I just want to say this from the bottom of my heart. It's a privilege to be your pastor. And it's very humbling to 
to your pastor because I go, wow, there's a lot of character qualifications and sometimes I feel like I'm not, I don't know if I meet the bar in all of those. And I've only been at it three years as a pastor, but I've, I've been with you 13 years. And I hope, I hope you know, those of you who know me, and if you don't know me, then maybe you'll learn it here, is that my life is open to you. And Brad's life is open to you. I know Brad shared a bunch from his life here a couple weeks ago. But my prayer daily is that what I have to offer in my life will be worth imitating. I hope it'll be worth imitating. For as long as God has set this role with, with you all before me, and I know Brad would say the same thing. And that's the reality, is if you want to chat, if you want to chat, I'm not a person who's going to blast my life out there on Facebook and say, yeah, now you can see it. But if you want to chat, you want to get together with me, my life is open to you. And those of you who have sat down with me and do sit down with me and my door is open, I hope you've caught that from our conversations, that my life is open to you. And I sure appreciate your prayers because there is a weight of responsibility that Brad and I have to carry in doing this. But we carry it because God's called us to do it. And as we carry it, I, I just hope you can catch that heart that I just hold it loosely. I hold it loosely and in faith I trust that this is what God has set before us. And so that's where we're at. As a church, that's where I'm at. I hope you sort of hear my heart this morning on Titus. So that's the end of my many sermons. I'll go ahead and pray and we'll close for the day. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. I thank you that Paul had such great things to say inspired by your spirit. And again, Lord, there's so many things that we could draw out of these passages and so many ways to go and only just about 30 minutes to even talk about it this morning. But God, I just trust there's been something there for each one of us. God, I think there's been something for me as I've prepared for this and thought about this. And wow, Lord, I'm, I'm humbled that you call me to walk into this in this specific way. And God, if, if there's places for me in my life where I'm not meeting the mark, if I'm not meeting the mark in character things, just reveal it to me and help me to grow. I'm sure each one of us could pray that. Lord, I pray that. Or as someone who's been called to to step into being the elder, the overseer, the shepherd of one of that plurality in this church. Lord, would you help me in it? And God, help help each one of us to just have a, a sense that your scripture is there to guide and direct us, even though sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's challenging and sometimes other people who maybe also believe the good news want to do something different. God, help us to go after that. Lord, help us to be on the lookout for those who would deceive us with their empty talk and their insubordination and their desire for shameful gain. Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to see. Help us to see. And God, we thank you that you hold everything. You hold it all. You know it all. You're ahead of us. You got it all worked out. That house is going to get clean. God, we just declare we want to be part of it. We want to choose it. We want to go after you, Lord. And some of us maybe have never received the free gift of salvation that is open to us, that is offered to us. Lord, would you be moving 
in our hearts. And draw us to you that make that choice and receive that free gift of salvation. Lord, guide us and protect us. Help us this week as we walk in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.